0: These are fun, off-the-cuff discussions on movies and streaming series, both new and old.
1: Together, we'll attempt to bridge the gap between Hollywood Industry Insider and the casual viewer.
0: This is Alec. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Cinema A to B Podcast. Today, we're going to do a little something different than what we normally do. We're not going to be talking about a movie or a TV show. We're just going to be talking about a specific director. And today, to get this started off, we're just going to talk about probably one of our favorites – Christopher Nolan. I just got to say that looking through directors, he was kind of the one that we've seen the, you know, definitely most, if not all of his entire, you know, filmography, easy to talk about. So Ben,
1: Nolan. Nolan. Yeah, this guy has just built an absolutely incredible filmography and and has not really taken that long to do it. You know, he, he burst onto the scene with Memento, which then gives him his basically his first studio picture is insomnia. Mm-hmm. And I saw insomnia in theaters and I think I, that's the first Nolan movie that I ever saw now that I think about it. Cause I, I didn't mm. see Memento until later. I don't remember what year I saw Memento. I think um, we had purchased it on DVD. So it's weird to say that, that my first Nolan films Insomnia it's not really overwhelmingly a Christopher Nolan picture. It, you can tell mm-hmm. that he's kind of reined in on that, that this is his first studio gig. And so he's kind of having to placate some. Cowtown. Yeah. So the first movie, I feel like his first studio picture that he really gets full reign to do what he's going to do is is Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. And that's Which- that's where most people start to realize, wow, this guy's. This guy's something else. I'd like to hear your kind of initial thoughts on on him as a, as a storyteller.
0: So uh, Memento was the first movie I saw of his, but not the first one in the theaters. And I will say I love Memento. I think it's fantastic. I think it's really great. I like Insomnia. I wasn't as huge of a fan, but I definitely agree with you that it's not really his completely. Like it doesn't have the – I, I don't want to say typical Nolan stuff because obviously he doesn't do a lot of – typical things throughout his all his movies, but definitely doesn't have that kind of Nolan feeling. Um however, Batman begins, I loved. Absolutely adored. Thought it was great. Like a little bit weaker, you know, final, final chapter, final third. Um, loved the first two of him becoming Batman, of him kind of going through the training, of him first learning, you know, Gotham stuff and getting his suit and all that. Like that was absolutely Brilliant. And kind of the down to earth feeling that he gave Batman at the time was so revolutionary, was so different than what had come before. I mean, we had just what come off of Joel Schumacher's, you know, Batman and Robin and Batman Forever and just, oh, like just really kind of ruined it. And obviously Tim Burton's Batmans are just, are Burton doing, you know, his own thing. So this is kind of this realistic Batman, which is really, I thought was kind of great. But then, I mean, honestly, the stuff that in between of the Batman movies is still fantastic. I mean, he does the prestige right after Batman begins.
1: So I want to like, I mean, I want to stop you there if I can interject, because I think when I look at his filmography, in my opinion, the prestige to me is kind of this, this pendulum turning point that Mm -hmm. for me with his, with his earlier filmography, where I really start to see the genius of Nolan. Mm-hmm. I love Batman begins, but it's, it's pretty conventional structurally. It doesn't start doing, you look at the, the ending of Batman begins. It's a really, it's not what has become known as the kind of typical conventional Nolan intercut ending. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't end that way. Um, but the prestige does. That's his first movie where he he starts to do that that intercut, and then with a uh, a character Musical. that's narrating that's in the movie that's off screen, and then the footage intercut over it, and the big reveal. I I, I wrestle because I think I like Dark Knight the best of his films, but <laughs> in my brain. I almost think prestige might be his best work still. Hmm. Okay. Because it's, it's so much more micro and because the characters really seem to carry prestige more than a lot of his other pictures. A lot of his other movies, the, the characters are really pretty much secondary to, uh, what he's to doing. what he's doing. The dark Knight, I think yeah. doesn't do that either though. It's, it's Heath Ledger kind of took care of that. Like it's, and it's the Joker's movie, but yeah, I I wanted to interject real quick with that with, I think the prestige is a really important film. Um, And, and he effectively was able to make the prestige because Batman begins did so well. Like he had an agreement with, with Warner brothers then that as long as things went, went well, then they would basically fund because he made the prestige for, for way less. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, you know, wasn't a hundred million dollar picture.
0: But talking about that, you know, they gave him not much for prestige, but now he's become one of the few directors that they'll throw hundreds of millions of dollars to, to make a film. And like, I mean, he did it with tenant, like a concept that is hard to understand. That's not a franchise movie. And I mean, I'm sorry. I I thought John David Washington was fantastic in tenant, but I mean, he's not the big name actor, like a ten pole actor that you put a couple hundred million dollar movie on, but yet Nolan is able to pull it off because he's got this. What I don't know this that it factor when he makes movies that he brings people in to watch that they're they're bigger than what they're supposed to be. I don't I don't know how to really really do it, but he just delivers.
1: I, I don't have insider information. I, this is what I've. This is a lot, largely what I've read, and it's it's verified. Um, But he is one of a handful of big picture directors along with a gentleman you might know named Ridley Scott who will (laughs) consistently stay on or under budget and Mm -hmm. finish on time with everything Mm -hmm. he does. And both of those guys are meticulous planners and Nolan just finds ways to I mean, this is a guy that if the weather is not cooperating, he'll just shoot anyway. Mm -hmm. And he's had other directors ask him, how do you get such crazy, cool looking like skies? And, and he's just like, we just shoot. Like, I don't wait. (laughs) Nothing phases this guy. Basically he, he won't, he won't wait around for like a perfect sunny day necessarily to shoot a sequence. He'll just shoot it. So like, we'll, we'll make it work. Um, the famous example is the, the huge set they built for inception on the mountainside in the snow and they built, they built a massive, not quite full scale, but it was big enough for actors to work in and they went to blow it up and it failed spectacularly. Like they, they, (laughs) they had it all wired up with dynamite and gasoline and, they go to blow this thing and only the f- initial explosion hits and the rest of it doesn't go up and everybody's waiting for him to freak out. And he's just like, eh, I was going to build a model of it anyway. The initial explosions there will just cut to the model. It's fine. Yeah. It, nothing, nothing phases him. And so I think the studios recognize that and they're just have, they just have, I mean, now decades of trust built up that this guy's just going to mm. deliver and and so much of tenant's issues were just outside of his control as far as uh, box office. If you look at like the theaters it was in during COVID, it knocked it out of the park. Like for it to have made the yep. money it did in the middle of the pandemic was is is a success by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Kind of you know talk about. I read an article uh, about Interstellar that was talking to Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway about kind of working with Nolan and. I don't know why I had in my this mind, but I definitely felt that he was much more of like the auteur director, like everything had to be right and everything. But he's not. They're talking about like you mess up on a take. Like sometimes he doesn't even reshoot. He's just like, oh, I like it, we'll, we'll, we'll use it or we'll use what I can from it and we'll work around it. And I think some of those, you know, not having the best takes, but having them to work around it organically or – try to fix it in editing or whatever comes up with some beautiful things like kind of what you're talking about with the sky and those kind of things that you wouldn't get if you were like, Nope, it has to be exactly this has to be exactly that. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And that's something that people should learn. You know, I mean, I'm sure it's hard to teach or hard to get that eye of how to figure it out. And he just seems to have it.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a, this isn't, this is a director concerned with performance, but not, obsessed with performance Mm -hmm. he is more of a director that leans toward camera and and what is the camera grabbing but i love that i love his whole approach that's he he basically works the way i would love to work on set except for i freak out about stuff so i just (laughs) i'm too neurotic to operate that way but yeah he's able to roll with with punches of stuff just not quite going right. But, but by the same token, he has a very tight knit crew. He rolls with, he's had the same, basically the same production designer the entire time, like production Mm -hmm. and costume design. Um, he had the same cinematographer for a long time. I think up through rises he had Wally Pfister who won an Academy Mm -hmm. award. And then Wally wanted to direct. And so he was like, you know, he, he rolled with the punches and, and hired uh, this Hoyt that he's had since uh, Interstellar. And then, you know, like we've, we mentioned on another episode, he's, his relationship's kind of soured right now with, with old Hans Zimmer. Because <laughs> Hans did Doom. I don't but, know. But that's not a bad thing, right? Because it gives, this, it gives other people an opportunity to work with him. Oh, and his first assistant director is the same guy, like, the whole time since like at least begins or insomnia or something like that. And just an aside, first assistant director for the, for people that aren't in the industry is kind of a confusing term. Cause you're like, well, wait, do they, so they're like a junior director and then they become like a film director. No, they're basically the closest thing to a, a film producer on set and they keep the ship running. They, they mm-hmm. keep, and they keep the, the main point of a first assistant director is to keep the shot schedule on, on the clock, like in there, yeah. they're in your ear. Hey, we've got, we've got five minutes to set the, you know, or 20 minutes to set the next shot up and then we got to roll. And then you start, you know, you start going over on takes. If you're a director, you're at take 20 and that first AD gently is like in your ear. <laughs> uh, you need to wrap this up. Cause we've got, six more shots. So that's what a first AD does. That's why you don't see them. It's not really a creative position. So they don't become, they don't usually become a director. They'll usually, if they get tired of being on set, they'll, they'll go into producing or something like that. But it's a super, super important position. I mean, just, yeah. By the way, the the two most important positions on set might just be first assistant director and the script supervisor. Hmm. And I'm sure he's had the same script supervisor His entire career and and script supers will become first ADs as well, but just a little note for, for people that aren't necessarily in the industry. So he's had, he's got this core, um, around him of people he trusts. And so I gobbled up as much as I could on what it was like to be on a Nolan set. And it's, it's very calm. He's got his flask of tea that he likes to drink <laughs> and he's got a little wireless monitor so that he can see, even though they shoot film, it's got a transmitter. Mm-hmm. So he's able to kind of keep the image, but yeah, the guy's super chill and it just blows my mind that he's able to be that chill and kind of loosey goosey with some stuff and make just what I think are some Amazing. of the best films of our era.
0: He also likes to play with time. I, that's what I, one of the things I love. I love the fact that all, pretty much almost all his movies, except for like the Batman stuff, really just play with time in some form or fashion. I mean, obviously the Prestige, less so. Obviously Insomnia, kind of. Uh, but I mean, Memento, obviously Inception and Interstellar, Tenant, I mean, even Dunkirk. I mean, yeah. it's fun to see kind of what he's going to do next with time to play with it and, you know, I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with Oppenheimer and what he's going to do with that. Like, I'm just, Oh, I just can't wait to see. Yeah. There's
1: absolutely going to be a time component to it. And I don't think it's going to be presented in, you know, it's certainly not going to be presented in, in a uh, linear fashion or strictly linear fashion. I think sections of it will be, will be linear and then we'll jump Mm -hmm. around, but it's a strength of his, but it's sometimes a weakness because I know there are, you know, some audiences really do have trouble kind of following what's going on with because he doesn't spoon feed the viewer, which I love. I, no. I don't like being yeah. I don't like being spoon fed narrative necessarily. I mean um now we can get into some of the the well known <laughs> the audio choices. issues with with Nolan movies and it all came to a head with with tenant and I guess I can give a little bit I'll be brief backstory on on this if you've not seen tenant there are entire sections of this movie there where the dialogue is basically unintelligible. And initially people thought that it was just like a bad mix, a bad audio mix. But the reality is I think it was a creative choice and he's come out and basically said as much that he was experimenting with, (laughs) yeah, this is a guy experimenting with like a $200 million movie (laughs) experimenting with using dialogue as just a, basically a sound effect, like part, part of the sound rather than the most important sound. And it drove people nuts. Now, when I saw it in theaters, I picked up on it pretty quickly that that this was intentional. And so I just stopped trying to understand it and just kind of sat back and tried to understand what was happening visually. And that worked for me because later in the movie, characters are speaking and they're perfectly easy to understand. So I was like, well, this... <laughs> This isn't a person mixing this to that messed up. This is this is a creative choice. So my guess is he doesn't do this on Oppenheimer. I don't think he will. I think th- there was there was a lot of backlash.
0: Well, and no one's definitely not one to not watch it after it's being done, edited or sound edited and doesn't notice that he can't hear the dialogue and then is just. Okay with it. Like obviously this was a conscious
1: decision on his part to send it
0: out. Or he's like going that. deaf. So obviously he, he yeah.
1: <laughs> or he's just losing so he his just hearing. Subtitles I mean, on. That was the joke, right? That he was losing his hearing. And yeah. that's what no. But what's funny is, is that he went from Dunkirk, which is largely it's entire sections are basically a, a silent picture mm-hmm. to tenant where there's dialogue but you can't understand it. So I don't yeah. know what we're getting with Oppenheimer. Greatness. I
0: don't
1: know. It, I Probably. Mean,
0: honestly, if it looking at his track record, yes. So I still I'm still curious. I know he talked about like with Dark Knight Rises. I still curious what things would have been like if Heath had still been around. Like, would the Joker have played a part at all in Rises and what did that story look like or what did that
1: movie look like? The only tidbit I've ever found on that was yes, Joker was the featured villain in the third installment of his Batman trilogy. But, and that Joker was behind bars, but was somehow still exceedingly dangerous, which makes sense. And there was supposed to Mm -hmm. be some sort of big trial. And I've read that you get, you sort of get a a glimpse of what that trial kind of was still in dark Knight rises when you have, um, scarecrow character, presiding with all those desks and stuff stacked up. So, Mm -hmm. but I don't, that's the extent of anything I've ever read. So who really knows what it was? They seemed, and surprisingly when he made Batman Begins, there was no intention of making a sequel. It was, it was designed as a standalone picture. I mean, they, they did that fun little nod at the end to, uh, to Joker with the, the playing Mm -hmm. card. And he's like, I'll, I'll look into it. But there was there was no deal done for a follow up, and so they just took it one movie at a time. And so they, Dark Knight was the same deal. They they took it one movie at a time, and then obviously he had loose plans in place for a third installment. But then you know Heath passes unexpectedly, so Um, and Rises, I just don't think Rises could could have ever met the expectations created by Dark Knight. Because Dark Knight's in my top it's, ten, it's firmly it's mm-hmm. firmly been in my top ten films, favorite films. I do want to caveat that I always say my top ten favorite movies. Like, you'll never see Ben's ten best movies because it's just it's just too subjective. So it's yeah. my favorites. But Dark Knight Rises is, or not Dark Knight Rises. Dark Knight is is in my top ten, but I have a hard time not wanting to put the prestige in there too. So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I can definitely tell you it's probably my favorite or in like the top two or three favorite movie going experiences. I mean, because you and I saw it, you know, in true IMAX and just from going from the small screen to the IMAX screen, you know, for all those different scenes in dark Knight, it was just absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah. You and I, that opening bank. Yeah. You and I and Vlad, um, Mm -hmm. shared that experience at AMC city walk in, uh, Studio city and yeah, yeah, to date, that's the most all inspiring image I've ever seen in my life. When it cut to, uh, you get that, that first initial shot where it cuts to, um, ledger. Well, it's ledger's joker and he's holding the clown mask down by his side. Oh, that's and that, right, And that that's was right. in a full frame IMAX cut and the, and the screen goes full frame and it was full 70 millimeter film. And I've, I've never seen anything like it before or yeah. since I think, we were still living there when the dark Knight rises prologue was released 10 minute teaser yeah. basically. And that was 70 millimeter as well. And that was, I was like, wow. But then I saw, I saw rises in the LIMAX later cause I'd moved away. <laughs> we, we, we both had and saw it in LIMAX and the image just wasn't this crisp. He's something else with his, with his IMAX obsession, but I, I get it. The problem is there's only <laughs> there's only like twenty or thirty of these screens that are gonna I think thirty screens to worldwide are gonna play Oppenheimer in seventy millimeter IMAX format. Yeah. So it's just not something that a lot of people are gonna be able to uh, enjoy.
0: When I mean, you get the, yeah, you get those fake ones or whatever. Luckily, we do have one that's about thirty miles away at the Hazy the National Air and Space Museum, the one in Virginia, not the DC one, but they have a, a true IMAX theater with the IMAX, you know, the projectors and stuff like that's where we saw rises. So, which is really nice.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the one here that's, it's owned by the Regal now it's a true IMAX screen. In fact, it's one of the largest screens in North America. The problem is they're still doing the, the dual 2k, um, Hmm. and their IMAX approved Christie projectors. Yeah. I, I kind of love his obsession with recording these things in the, the, best format on earth even though it's Mm -hmm. just completely ridiculous i mean the cameras weigh 80 pounds like it you you can't really record dialogue heavy scenes with them because the cameras are too loud although imax is working on that and then he makes they came up with their own film stock for oppenheimer because prior to this movie (laughs) black and white 70 millimeter or 65 millimeter negative didn't exist Pushing the envelope. Oh, absolutely. Pushing the envelope. Yeah. And he's, it, it, James Cameron's pushing the digital envelope and on the other side, Nolan's pushing the, mm-hmm. still pushing the old analog envelope. So.
0: But he makes lots of money doing it. Yeah. And they're going to continue to give him lots of money. They to do should. These he's,
1: he's tremendous. Um, now I do want to address a big kind of a common complaint. I I've heard from people on Nolan, which is that his films lack Emotion. Hmm. I don't really think that's fair. I think what what you're seeing, though, and I'll just use Tenant as his the most recent example, since that's his last release. Yeah, long stretches of Tenant are kind of emotionally can be flat, but almost always Nolan gives you an incredibly powerful emotional payoff. He mm-hmm. did it. The, he he do, he does it more subtly, but he does it at the end of Tenant. The ending, the ending of Dunkirk, Dunkirk and Dark Knight are my favorite Nolan endings. Oh. I mean, they just are, they just emotion. Dunkirk is just really emotionally powerful ending to a movie. Um Inter- Interstellar not quite as, you know, but I th- but Interstellar has got much more emotionally resonant moments peppered throughout. Um, and I, that's why you cast McConaughey. Cause he's able to, he's, he's, Timbo he's very that. raw. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't really think that's fair. And then Inception's about a guy trying to get back to his children for crying out loud. Yep. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand the argument, but I guess it does. It's I guess the only thing I could see is that there are sometimes long stretches in his movies that are, you know, where the emotional tone is kind of, a little bit flat
0: but the payoffs he gives you and e- the films are just absolutely fantastic yeah. like how he does this how he twists it how he brings it around puts it all back together is just great i mean i remember with memento where it was kind of like wait i'm i'm watching one scene and you know one part of the movie forward and the rest of the movie in little snippets backwards you know like And then it kind of coalesces like fantastic. Yeah,
1: And by the way, I mean, he, he is, he's been kind of labeled as, as a aloof and kind of an emotionally distant, uh, director. And I just, I disagree. I mean, look, I look at the number of movies he has in his catalog that some in some way or another address what it is to be a parent, specifically Mm -hmm. a father, interstellar check inception check. The prestige check and then moments, you know, the whole father son dynamic that he's created with, with his Batman trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's just, it's, it's more subtly done and he usually waits for a, a larger payoff because he ends movies so well. He does. I can't wait for Oppenheimer to come out. Oh, yeah, Oh, We're basically going to so treat bad. this as like our, I guess we can. Yeah, kind of an Oppenheimer preview <laughs> oh. episode. I mean, is it fair to say that's your number one most anticipated movie of 2023?
0: Absolutely. Mine too. 100%. Yeah. This is it. Uh, the rest of my, the rest of everything else is just gravy to see once Oppenheimer's out. Like, much like even 2020 with Tenant, like, that was, I was excited it was still coming out because I really wanted to see it. And I really, I really do like it. Like, I walked out of it really still happy with Tenant, even though the two guys I, I, saw it with were complaining about not being able to hear it and it was super loud and all that stuff. I mean, they liked it, but I just walked out going, what did I just watch? Like so many levels.
1: My only complaint with tenant is not enough people in my circles have seen it. So there just isn't, there isn't a wide group of people I can even discuss it with. I mean, obviously you, and I've got, you know, I think a, a few coworkers that saw it, but not, not that many. And and then a lot of people that have seen it only saw it once and they didn't understand it. It's not irony that that movie that's spelled the same way forwards and backwards probably needs two viewings to be fully understood. Mm -hmm. It it really does. And it's why it's just wild. It's wild. I just, I love his risk taking as a director. The guy just doesn't play it safe. And you think he would by this point. And he's just like, no, not interested. I want to, I want to push the technology. I want to push what it is you think a narrative film narrative should look like. I'm going to try to push what you think a good sound mix is. (laughs) He doesn't digitally color correct anything. Wow. No, that I didn't know. He has a whole process that he basically created with, with cinematographer Wally Pfister on film processing the negative traditionally. Hmm. And then they they color match the what few CGI sequences in compositing, they'll color match it to what that the way that film stock looks. Which if you watch his movies in the highest format possible, there there is a crispness to his image that other movies that are even shot on film don't have. Go back and watch Nolan movies, by and large, they'll mostly have kind of a similar look like skin tones usually look pretty uniform across all his, his entire film catalog. Like he doesn't, he doesn't deviate really hard. Um, Dunkirk's probably one of the only ones that kind of seems to have a different feel, but like the, the skin tones in Tenet look like the skin tones in interstellar. Hmm. And okay, they yeah, look I'll like the skin and- tones yeah. in inception. Like he has a uniformity hmm. to the way things kind of look and, I love that because I don't like the overstylized, color corrected, super heavy color grade in anything other than maybe like a John Wick movie. Like, I appreciate <laughs> it for things like that. Yeah. But the other director that does this, that tries to create more of a naturalistic film, this is the way the film kind of is going to look, is Tarantino. And his mm. movies have healthy color, good color, saturation, good vibrance. Yeah. And, and Nolan's not afraid of, of good color saturation. His movies aren't washed out like a, like say a Clint Eastwood movie. Go watch a Clint Eastwood movie. They're, they might as well be black and white. Alex heard, <laughs> Alex heard me complain <laughs> about this before. I love Clint Eastwood, but Nolan's image is as good as there is as good as there is. Yeah. And, and a lot of my favorite directors seem to not shy away from, from that. He's, he's hmm. special. He's special. He's I just don't special. Want to, I don't know when he's going to win a stinking Oscar, even though I don't like the Oscars. I still think he needs to win one. It seems like there's members of the Academy that don't like him. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Because he doesn't play by the rules. I'd love to see him win Best Director for Oppenheimer. But here's the thing I think Oppenheimer is going to offer that a lot of his other movies haven't. It's a it's a character study. I mean, the, yeah, the visuals a- are going to be extraordinary, right? With, with him, especially the fact that he recreated an A-bomb explosion with conventional explosives and filmed it mm-hmm. with high-speed cameras instead of CGI. Which, of course, that's a, of course Nolan did that. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> but the fact mm-hmm. that you have Cillian Murphy that's going to be able to, oh, to play this character. He and he wrote the yeah. script in first person. So the entire movie is from the perspective of of Oppenheimer. Interesting. So okay. that's and he wrote it. He decided to write it in in first person to to stay stay in that lane, basically. So okay. if that's the Adjust. case, then I think you get you know a movie that would be one of his first heavy character study movies since the Prestige. So, cause the rest, the rest of his movies aren't uh, the dark Knight might yeah. fit that bill, but a lot of his other movies are, seem to be more about the environment and what's happening to the characters rather than focusing on, on one, one individual. So yeah, I hope he wins best director. And then obviously I hope Cillian Murphy wins uh best, best actor. actor. Yeah. 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 I don't know if I told you, I don't know if it'll win best picture. I don't
0: know it's going to be No, well, I mean he's only been nominated twice for best uh, picture for Dunkirk and then Inception. Yeah. So and only once for best directing for um Dunkirk.
1: Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah, he got absolutely so- Dark Knight got hosed. I oh, mean yeah. completely a completely, movie. completely movie I think is, it's, it's I think amazing. it's the best, you know, amongst the best movies ever made and it, and it's firmly to me it's it is Mount Everest of the superhero genre yeah there's no and there's no close yeah. second there's I don't want to hear the fanboys telling me Logan is oh. I like Logan but <laughs> not even that's it's very enjoyable it that's but, the, it's but that's not the, the other one caliber. that gets some some pub on you know oh this is the best superhero movie ever made is is Logan I'm like nah nah I don't think so no. but again yeah. it's subjective but I'm uh, Figured I'd But they're wrong Of course <laughs>
0: Yeah Of course they are on. on our podcast they're. Really yeah fine. And in
1: real life Well I guess we didn't really dig into like His signature stuff But maybe a little bit I mean, He definitely Yeah He's got the Yeah he's got the intercut Where uh,
0: Plays with time
1: Yeah he He'll take He'll take uh, Multiple Timelines And weave them eloquently in the, into a uh, to a wonderful conclusion you know you've heard tarantino say this you know he he's he's cutting himself his career short as far as feature films he's going to direct because mm. he's studied so many big directors and feels like there's a point at which they uh they're never able to quite match their the hot point in their career and i just wonder when he
0: feels like that's going to happen. For well,
1: him. you know, is, is Oppenheimer kind of his, his last truly great picture or, or does this guy hmm. still got a lot of tricks up his sleeve? I mean, I would think, he, I think he's going to continue to make tremendous movies, but I'm wondering if, I'm wondering if all the cards or all the dominoes are falling right for Oppenheimer to be his, his saving private Ryan or hmm. his gladiator. Or you know, or heat something crazy. Is this his heat? Yeah. You know, seems like these guys. You know, and then obviously Spielberg had Schindler's List as well. So, and, and many other great films. It's not like those are the only two. But I, I my you know my favorite of Spielberg is is Saving Private Ryan. But he's he's made a, a bunch of other stuff. And yeah, Nolan just feels like I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they uh, they took Ridley Scott and Michael Mann. <laughs> And Steven Spielberg and sampled their DNA and mixed it in a lab in England and it's gave birth to Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Nolan. So, but st- but tonally, tonally, I think I think Nolan is closest to Michael Mann. Yeah, that's that's who I when I watch his films in the their their tone. That's who I feel like I see the most. Wow. So.
0: And honestly, out of all all the directors, he's kind of homage to. I think Man has the, been the one that he's homaged
1: the most. Yeah, Ridley Scott yes. would be number two. Yeah, Ridley Blade Runner still has a huge, heavy influence on everything mm. that that Nolan does. But and and then and Kubrick, thank goodness his shooting method is not Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, endless takes to wear down he- my actors and actresses until they just break. And then I get what they yeah. get what I want. So he wouldn't have the the actors coming back for more every single movie. Cooper couldn't operate as a director in this era. Nobody no. would work with him. Not at all. No. No. Yeah, no one was made for no one was made for this era, and we're just all happy to be part of the party. Yes, we are. any final thoughts? No. I uh No. I think we got it all out. Well, I yeah, I mean we could probably we could probably dialogue on on him for for a long time but that's not really the point of this um our our goal yeah. is that you get yourself out there and watch some Christopher Nolan.
0: Yeah. Go back see his back catalog. Even his movie Following, one of his first, is st- is still really good too and a lot of, very interesting. Yeah, he so, uh,
1: says Following is basically the best that they could do kind of on their own. With minimal mm-hmm. minimal crew minimal investment that was just sort of the pinnacle of what could he felt like could be accomplished yeah outside the and it's still good system oh yeah. still good yeah
0: thanks for joining us and see you in the next one
1: yeah take care everybody